A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have with me today TJ Nelligan. TJ TJ has been a big name in sports for a lot of years. Um, Welcome, TJ. Glad to have you with us today. Great to be here with you. So TJ is in um, warm and, well, hopefully sunny Florida today. So again, the power of Zoom, we get to do things remote. We don't have to be all in the same studio in the same place. But TJ's, TJ's got a really great story, a, a, a story of, of, you know, really building up a, a pretty incredible career and then having his life changed. Um, and so without giving too much of it away, you know, let, let's just start with the history. Let's start with the career piece of it, TJ. Would you share with our listeners your story? Sure, I'd be happy to. I, um, I spent about seven years on Wall Street and really enjoyed it, um, but found that I didn't really have a passion and it wasn't a lifestyle. You know, over the years, I've spoken to a lot of colleges and university students, and I always say, you can't be the best in your industry unless you have a passion for it. And Sunday night, you're not sweating going, I don't want to go to that job. It's not a job, it's a life. Um, so I spent seven years on Wall Street and then ironically, I was watching Regis Philbin's TV show, and there's a guy named Roy Engelbrecht who used to run the LA Forum way back in the day. And this is in the late uh, 89 or so. And I see he has this Sportscasters Camps of America. So I go stay at Loyola Mount, Loyola Marymount University uh, in the dorms. 90% of the people there were college students, obviously, that wanted to be sportscasters. And I was 29 years old. I was probably one of the older people there. And they taught you how to do play-by-play for basketball and baseball, taught you how to do the ESPN studio type thing. And as we took some of the classes, I said, well, I'm not quitting my Wall Street job. And my wife was pregnant with our first child, Sean, at the time, to go to Little Silver, New Mexico to make 100 bucks a game and try to work my way up to become Bob Costas one day. So I went and I met with the athletic director at St. Peter's University, which is in the Metro Atlantic Conference still to this day, and told them, I'll give you $1,000 for your radio rights, and we'll put all the games on. Last year, you only had 10 games on. And he looked at me like, are you out of your mind? Like, why would you do this? Do you have all the equipment? I didn't even know what equipment you needed, but I said, of course, sir, of course I do. So me and my buddy Joe ended up doing all the games that year. We did them for a second year. And during that time frame, I got introduced to Host Communications, which was the leader in college sports marketing, representing the who's who of colleges, universities, conferences, and the NCAA Final Four and all the NCAA championships. So I ended up starting the host office in New York City for Jim Host, who's a legend in the business, and ended up working there for 10 years and then started my own company, which I had for 15 years. So working for Jim was great. He'd come up and we'd walk around the streets in New York City. And I always called him coach because he spent so much time and was so generous to teach me the business. And I, was, I ended up being in charge of all the national sales and calling on a who's who of Fortune 500 companies from GM and Amex and Nabisco, Hershey, and would sign them up to be NCA corporate partners. So I ended up going to 25 Final Fours in a row, had just the most magnificent time, and never worked a day in my life since that day I started there in 1990. Um, and it was, it was just an amazing thing, and that's why I tell people all the time. You know, my friend, Buddy Velastro, who was friends with my son, Sean, lived next door to us in Montville. When he started one bakery that he got from his father making cupcakes, did you ever think the Food Network would come along and he'd be a household name worldwide. No, he did what he had a passion for. And the end result just happened to be he was the best at what he did. So when that technology came along and the Food Network and all the different platforms, he took it up to the next level. And that's really what I did was we would represent colleges, universities, you know, uh, and really just had a ball bringing in revenue for them. And it was a great niche back then so 24 years, I, 25 years I spent in the business. But when I first got in, it wasn't the multi-billion dollar business it is today. There was nobody 
selling sponsorships on a local level for that college and university. You know, most of the people that worked in the athletic department charged with bringing in sponsors wanted to be an athletic director. In fact, I don't think in 25 years I ever met one person that worked in an athletic department with the word sales in their business card. Yeah. So it became a great business where the colleges and universities outsourced all those rights to us, TV, radio, signage, you know, all the sponsorships. And we built a huge business because of the demographics of college sports. You know, they're highly educated, white collar jobs, making a lot of income. So the demographics is what corporate America wants to reach. And that's why the NCAA basketball tournament on CBS and TNT brings in so much money because you're reaching that niche audience that's very difficult to reach. And they have a lifelong affinity to the institution they went to. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious. This is kind of a, a, a little bit of a side question. But so was this Jim Host's vision when you joined or was it, or were you part of creating the vision of this? Well, Jim was in business since the 70s. I joined in 89, 90. And, you know, when I got there, the company had six or seven properties. I was one of the eight people on the management committee. Uh, and basically, we went out and built the business to five times what it was when I got there and had a ball doing it. Just amazing. As I said, it's not a job. I went to college sporting events for a living. I met with athletic directors and presidents of universities and some of the most famous coaches in football and basketball and college sports. So it just became such a passion. And I was good at sales. So we maximized the revenues for our university partners. And, you know, then I had my own company for 15 years. We represented over 60 properties, had 40 offices, you know, around the country. We had one on every college campus we represent pretty much. And, you know, just took what was a diamond in the rough. All these colleges, universities, and those consumers basically trapped in the football and basketball arenas and had to just fall doing it. And in fact, I didn't even want to sell a company, but um, the, the business was eight entrepreneurs, nine entrepreneurs. And then IMG bought hosts, IMG bought ISP, and then uh, Learfield was bought by a private equity group in New York. And they came to us and made us a deal, as they say in New Jersey, we couldn't refuse. <laughs> no, I understand how that works. And, you know, a, a little, just I'll say a tiny bit of my familiarity with it was because we used to actually interact with IMG. Back when I was a big boy, we did concessions for events. And so we had a number of events IMG had, had um, hosted or put together. So that was a, a, a name I was familiar with. Were they a competitor of yours before before they bought bought you guys? Is, is that now, IMG was never in the college sports space until later. And they bought Post and then they bought yeah. ISP. So they created IMG College. But they were all competitors at that time. And then, you know, Learfield came in and bought us. And then ironically, Learfield merged with IMG. So now there's, you know, one big player. And there's also Van Wagner out there, who my good friend who ran our sales at Nelligan Sports. Uh, Mike Polisi is running that now. Yeah. And uh, build a very nice business over there. So, you know, I, I mean, I, uh, your, your passion drove you to, su to some really amazing success. And, and I, I think it is key. You know, I, I think one, one of the old philosophers said, find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's, that's obviously what you're expressing. But it wasn't always easy, was it? I mean, you know, passion, work can still be hard. Some people sometimes translate that, well, if I'm passionate about it, it's going to be easy. Um, that's not the case. No, that's not the case at all. I mean, you could work your tail off. It doesn't mean you're going to be successful. You know, some of the smartest people that I've met were not great employees for us that went to the Ivy League schools. I mean, this is a sales job. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you went to school. Mm -hmm. It matters what you do when you go out there and sell and create the revenue stream for all our partners. And you're right. You have to have a passion for it. You don't work a day in your life if you love what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So... So, you know, you, you, you built this tremendous success. You were a well-known name out there in the industry. And um, you, you, made a, you made mention of the comment that, um, that you know, early on, you know, you, you commented that your wife was, was pregnant with your son, Sean. So Sean comes along. And uh, Sean, you know, for the, for the audience, was a special needs kid. Um, you know, d tell me a little bit about Sean in the, er in the early years. Well, the early years are very difficult for parents because he wasn't born and they didn't just say, oh, you have a child with Down syndrome or this or that. We took home what we thought was a perfectly healthy baby boy 
And over the next three or four months, things started to unravel. He had seizures. We went to doctors and hospitals and he was put on medications. And about two years later, he was still trying to learn to walk. He's going to physical therapy. He's going to speech therapy. Uh, and we went to one of the four renowned uh, neurologists in the world. And this doctor actually wrote the textbooks that people study to become neurologists. And we went in there and he examined Sean for about an hour. And then uh, my mother stayed with Sean in the waiting room and his mom, Maggie, and I went in to see him. And he basically just very bluntly, matter-of-factly told us that Sean had intellectual disabilities. He would never live a normal life, probably never going to college or holding down a job and won't fit in great in society and mainstream in your community because these different disabilities are going to be more pronounced the older he gets. So that was my second worst day of my life. And basically over the next few years, until he was about eight or 10 years old, it was all physical therapy and speech therapy and all these different kinds of things that are very difficult for the parents. And all of a sudden he got into his teen years and he started to laugh about everything and loved life, was the happiest human being you've ever met and started getting involved with Special Olympics. Um, when he was about five years old, uh, a fraternity brother of mine from Richmond had lunch with me in New York City and he happened to be on the board of Special Olympics in New Jersey. And I told him all about Sean and he said, you need to come down to the College of New Jersey for the summer games. You can't believe this organization. So I reluctantly went. I had Sean on my back in a backpack because he was still a frail little thing. And we walked around this campus and we watched people swimming and track and field and softball and bocce ball. And they were all smiling and they were all happy and they were all hugging each other. And I said, wow, Sean can be an athlete. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. So I joined the board of Special Mix New Jersey in 1995-ish and was on that until 2011 when we started the board for the Special Olympics USA Games, which I chaired, and we raised a lot of money for New Jersey, and then we raised over $20 million for the Special Olympics USA Games, which was at the time the highest profile national games in the history of Special Olympics North America. So that was a great run, and it got our entire family involved in Special Olympics. His mom, Maggie, his sisters, Maura and Megan. And sometime during this time, you realize Sean's dreams weren't shattered. My dreams as a first-time parent were shattered for what I thought I was entitled to and Sean was entitled to. But he didn't feel entitled at all. In fact, he was perfectly happy to be alive. He was the happiest guy you ever saw. And he didn't focus on what he couldn't do because he didn't know what he couldn't do. He only knew what he could do. And there comes a day in their development where you look at this young man or this young woman and you don't see the disabilities anymore. You only see what they can do and what they can achieve. And that takes a while to get there for parents, but that's a great day because now you realize, why should I be brokenhearted about this? This kid is the happiest human being I've ever seen. And he couldn't ride a two-wheel bike, so we got him a giant three-wheel bike that he'd drive around the beach and had a ball. Yeah, and so what, what was that moment that, that you had? Um, I don't know if it was an epiphany or if it just kind of came on slowly, but what was that moment that, that you realized as a parent that that's the important shift? Uh, a friend of mine talks a lot about living in the world of um, – of abundance versus a world of scarcity, right? And so, so looking at what you have versus what you don't, and and how important that is on your outlook. Um, was was there a moment that caused that shift, or or for you, or did it kind of come over time? Well, I think the one moment I remember vividly, like it was yesterday, was Sean was twelve years old, and I was the chairman of the board for Special Olympics New Jersey, and there were eight or ten thousand people in the football stadium at College of New Jersey. And law enforcement raises so much money. So they're lined up on the sides. In March, 3,500 athletes. And I see Sean for the first time able to come in and compete and be an athlete. And I think a little tear came down my you know, face as I looked at him. I said, wow, this is a big day. And I think that day was the beginning of watching him grow and mature and you said something earlier, which is very true. You know, I worked on Wall Street and the Michael Douglas greed is good and he who dies with the most toys wins. 
and, you know, working my tail off to become an entrepreneur and start my own company. And that's what it was about. And then I see this young man that taught me, you know, material assets is not what he had. He had unconditional love, gratitude. You know, he had good friends and he was always present in the moment. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to learn, especially as type A people building businesses, is you always say, well, I'll be grateful and I'll be happy when I get to the destination, when I get to the goal for the company in three years or five years. And the problem with that is as an entrepreneur, if we hit the goal in two years, we were hoping to get to in five, what do we do? We move the goalposts. Yeah. So we're not happy. Now we want to go again. Yeah, yeah. There's there's always kind of that 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 distance between where we are today and where we want to be. Uh, so we have to we have to take a quick pause here. We're already up on our first break. It, it time goes by quickly. I, th- I think I say that every in every show. It's amazing how fast we get going. We just get going on comment. But uh, folks, stay tuned. We're going to take just a quick break. We'll be back with TJ in just a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with TJ Nelligan. Uh, you know, TJ, before the break, actually, you know, you, you made mention of the rest of your family, and I am just kind of curious. So, so um, you know, uh, you've got two daughters. Um, Sean was your oldest, is that correct? Sean was the oldest, and then Maura was four years younger than Sean, and Megan was eight years younger than Sean. So Both have now graduated college. Megan just graduated Syracuse in May with no oh, graduation thanks to COVID. And Maura just graduated Seton Hall and is going to go get a master's in uh, work, she already has a job offer at a special needs school, uh-huh. um, which I'm so proud of her because she's going to help so many Sean's out there. And both of them were amazing sisters. You know, as they became older and intellectually past Sean, they became like second and third mothers to Sean as well. They were his protectors. You know, they thought that we're going to have to teach Sean about life. You know, more and Megan always said that. But here we are. He's taught us more than we could have ever taught him about life. You know, Megan started a unified basketball game at her high school, which is the boys and girls varsity team and the Special Olympics athletes on Sean's team. And they play, you know, half and half on each team. And they play a, a fundraising game. And that's become a big thing in sports is unified sports and Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I think that the most amazing thing was, and his mom Maggie always said this, that when you get to that point where you see what they can achieve and you realize how lucky you are to have someone that hugs you every day, I could be in the middle of an event with the president of a university and AD. And if Sean wanted to hug you, that's when he hugged you. And he came everywhere with us. You know, we were worried we'd have to protect him from somebody saying something mean or him stumbling when he was small. And at the end of the day, his mom always said, God doesn't make mistakes. Sean was the perfect child for us, and we were the perfect family for him. 
And, you know, we took him everywhere. If somebody had a problem, then it was their problem. It wasn't our problem. And I think that gave Sean, his sisters and his mom, especially teaching him that he can be himself. He is just out there being himself. And if he wants to hug you, he's going to hug you. And he would ask questions of people that we would never ask. But the recipient knows it's coming from a place of kindness yeah. and genuine, you know, and authenticity. And he's an original young man who is just going to ask the questions he's interested in. Yeah, it's amazing that 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 perspective and and how many of us are are, are able to to give Sean and others like Sean grace. We're we're not always willing to give other people grace, are we? That's a hundred percent true. I used to always say I have patience, you know, for Sean and for all the special Olympics athletes I was involved with. But I think you only have so much, you know. You know, you don't have it for everyone else because I say. You know, you went to an Ivy League school and you think you're entitled to a better job. This is a sales company. Hit your numbers and you'll get paid more. Yeah. And at the same time, here's this young man who, with his best friend Bobby, worked at Nelligan Sports and accounts receivable. They'd come in, they'd do all the bills, they'd mail them out. They'd walk around talking every Monday morning about sports and what happened that weekend with all their colleagues. And here they became friends with all these people. And they were the best employees because they took such pride in it. Yeah, they, they, they again. It's like you said; they have a passion for every day that they're alive, and that's something we don't always we don't always have. That that living in the moment becomes very very important. You know, uh, just this is going to sound like an off the wall question. It's a curiosity more than anything. But so so more of you you mentioned is four years younger. That meant by that point you were already into and understood. You know the 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 you know the upcoming struggles and maybe you hadn't come to complete grips with it um did that cause any hesitation with having more of a family i mean i've had friends who decided not to have any more kids after the same kind of situation and i think that that you know that's a choice obviously but um but it didn't hold you back but but were you afraid um of having another kid Oh, I think, uh, yes, I think you're scared because you, we never found out what happened. All we know is that he had intellectual disabilities that happened in utero before he was born. So you're worried, could that happen again? Um, but more and Megan grew up and they didn't know anybody other than Sean. Sean was Sean and he was always there and he was just the way he was. And they embraced him and loved him and just allowed him to be himself. And I was out building my company. so. You know, Maggie and Moore and Megan, I'm traveling all around the country. So in the early years, they did most of the work. You know, I'd come home on the weekends and take them out and we would go to sporting events and he loved all that stuff, meeting all the coaches and everybody. But what you said earlier is one of the chapters in the book, which is be present. And I think that's very hard for people. You know, I've stood in a room and looked over your shoulders to see some executive I need to go schmooze and see if I can make a deal with them as opposed to talking to the person you're talking with. And Sean had that one-on-one -on -one ability. Whoever he was with got 100% of his attention. Every summer, my mother and father would come down to the beach, and there was a little, the Surflight Theater, a little th theater that had kids shows and adult shows at night. Sean would only take grandma. My father would tease him, and I'd tease him and go, okay, I got four tickets for grandpa and grandma, me and you, Sean. No, uh-uh, this is grandma's time. And they would go to lunch and they would go to the show and that was grandma's special time. But one of my favorite stories about being present is we went to Derek Jeter's last home game at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Yankees are winning, top of the ninth, game's over, right? So what do I do? All right, Sean, let's get out of here. Let's beat the traffic. Are you crazy, Dad? It's not over. We have to see Jeter after the game, meaning on the field. And then, of course, what happens is the Orioles tie the game. Jeter comes up with a tie game, bottom of the ninth, his last home game at Yankee Stadium after an iconic 20-year career and hits a walk-off out of a Hollywood movie. I would have missed it. I would have been on my way home. So a lot of those events that we were the last car at a parking lot of every single sporting event. Sean never left. Yeah, that's I, it's outstanding. And, and how many moments we miss just because we're worried about what's going to happen next. Simple example, I don't want to be stuck in traffic, so I'm going to leave early. And, and I, I think we do. We, we miss this opportunity to celebrate things because we're so hung up on the next, let's call it the next achievement. 
right? And it works it works that way in the, the the business world all the time, but I think it works that way in our in our personal world. And you know, I, I try to think about you know even in my work today, how many you know events of my daughters that I wasn't able to go to because I was out of town or this or that, and and now you know re, you know regretting it. I do everything I can to be with my kids, but I, I watch people that miss their their kids stuff all the time, and you know taking that time and coaching your kids, you know little league team or or doing other things, isn't this what life is? supposed to be about yet early in your career you know the wall street days and even starting the business there there are moments that 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 you're thinking about building the family wealth building you know building money and and building the material things so it's been an amazing transformation that that you've gone through um you know you you mentioned the book and I haven't mentioned the book yet, so I want to mention the book right now. The book is Live Like Sean. So, you know, as a result of um, Sean's life, TJ has, um, has put a book together, a great book um, that really takes you through a lot of great life lessons. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, we covered one of the chapters, but we've got a little bit of time. I want to, I want to hear more of these, these lessons and stories. So would you, would you tell us a little bit about the book and, you know, let's, let's share what happened with Sean and, um, and what was the motivation for the book and, and let's move from there. Well, Sean passed away suddenly, unexpectedly on Father's Day of 2019. And as you know, his, his sisters, more and Megan and his mom, but mostly his sister said, Sean, I think, went to one funeral home in his life, his grandfather, Maggie's father. And he just didn't have anything to do with this, right? So we decided we're going to have a memorial and celebrate his life and have all the food that he liked there. So as I was writing his eulogy, I kept writing down all these little funny stories and anecdotes and things about why Sean, which I've realized for the past 15 years of his life, that he was such a unique human being, you know, the unconditional love for everybody. And I came up with the saying, live like Sean. Not when it's easy, not when it's convenient, but every day try to live like Sean because you'll have a better life and you'll make those around you enjoy better lives with you. And so I gave this eulogy and then his sisters, more and Megan spoke and then his mom spoke and they were all three amazing And after it was over, a friend of mine who's on TV in New York comes up to me. I've known him for 20 years, and he used to do a lot with Special Olympics or golf outings with Sean, and he knew Sean. And he hugs me, and he says, that's your book. Live like Sean. You just gave the outline to your book. And I just looked at him like, are you out of your mind? Did you see my English SAT scores? I don't think I'm writing a book. (laughs) And then as I, and then I had my co-writer, Teresa DiGeronimo, who also wrote some books for my friend Steve. Uh, and I sat down and I told her the stories and I told her all the different things about Sean. And we created all the chapters um, with different life lessons that Sean taught us. And I think the one amazing thing at his memorial, his whole basketball team was there in their uniforms. And they had the the uh, Special Olympics color guard, the bagpipers, it was amazing, almost a thousand people. So after I gave my eulogy and kind of lost it at the end, I sat down and they're playing a song before the girls got up to speak. And his teammate James comes running up to the front of the room, there's all tables all around, and he hugs me from behind in a big bear hug and he goes, are you okay? Are you okay, buddy? And that's the thing that no one else in the room is going to do. And he just said, he's hurting. I need to go hug him because Sean's not here to hug him. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent story. Uh, You know, so that, so, so here comes the book now. And the book is, um, if I recall, every chapter is, is a story. It's a lesson. And, um, right. you know, can we walk through some of those lessons? Let's, let's, let's help, help the readers get, get some, of, um, some of these things and some of the stories behind them. So, what, so Be Present was one of them. What's, what's the next big one you would highlight? Yeah, I think the first chapter was uh, gratitude. Mm-hmm. I think gratitude is probably the hardest thing for people to learn uh, because we'll be grateful some other day. Now, Sean couldn't spell the word gratitude, couldn't write, couldn't read, but... He was grateful every single day for the people in his life, for his family, for his sisters, for everybody. And you could just see him living so grateful. I mean, we were at Disney World one year with, for my dad's 70th birthday, and there's 15 grandkids, right? All shouting, this is 15 years ago. 
I want that hat. I want the Mickey thing. I want this. And my sister sees Sean just watching this nonsense. And she goes, Sean, do you want a hat? He goes, I have a hat. Well, do you want a Mickey t-shirt? He's like, I already have a t-shirt. Well, what do you want? And he says, I want to shoot baskets over there and win a prize. So that's what he wanted to do. And that's what he did. And he shot baskets until he won a prize. But it was amazing that he just said, I'm happy. You know, that's another chapter, happy. He was happy that he had one hat. He was happy with what he had. And I used to tease him all the time. I said, okay, you're paying for dinner. You got your credit card? And he goes, stop, dad, I don't have any money. And it made me realize we don't need that stuff. You know, his assets were love, kindness, all those things is what he had. And in some ways, special needs people in general People view them like they're missing something. I view him like he had more assets than we do. Like he saw things differently. He saw, and that's why in the book I come up with the line, once you look at the world through their eyes, it's a much happier and better world instead of looking at it through your eyes. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Um, and it, it requires a certain amount of empathy. And, and you know, I'm sure we've got listeners that are at different ends of scale, but I want to go back to this concept of gratitude for a minute. Um, tell me a little bit about how you would define gratitude and and why do you think it's so tough? Well, let's start with the definition because we're going to come up on a, on a break here in a minute, but I, I, I think gratitude is something that is, is really missing in this world today. It seems to be. So, um, so I'd like to know more on your philosophy on that and, and, and you know, what, it, what it meant to you before and what it means to you today. Well, I think they all tie together. So if you're going to be present today and you want to be grateful, you got to look for those small moments during the day to say thank you, right? To look through the eyes of a special needs child is to see the world so differently than I did before Sean taught it to me. And so I think you got to just say thank you for what you do have. And thank you for, you know, the family and all the people you have. And, you know, I don't know anybody that on their deathbed said, I wish I worked more. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that isn't that a, an absolute truth? Well, we're um we're already up on our next break, so uh, let's let's take a couple minutes. Uh, again, stay tuned. We'll be back with TJ in just a couple minutes. We'll continue our conversation on how to live like Sean. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience meeting organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with TJ Nelligan. So, TJ, before we went to the break, we, we started down the path of talking a little bit about gratitude. And one of the things we talked about over the break is um, why it seems so difficult 
for people to live a life of gratitude, to think about gratitude. So you have had, um, you know, some people might, might look at your life as having been tough, having, having a, a, a special needs kid like Sean. You, on the other hand, have had just nothing but blessings as a result of it. And you've had, I'm going to say, an opportunity to learn. You know, you mentioned, you know, looking, life, you know, looking at life through their eyes. Um, a lot of people don't get that opportunity, and so they struggle with gratitude. And um, you know, how, how does how does somebody even even recognize that they should be more grateful? How does somebody snap out of it? How do they how do they learn um, learn to be uh, to have more gratitude? I guess is the way I'm trying to say it to be more grateful. Well, I think it is the hardest thing to learn, or any lessons in life you can learn. I think that's because, especially in today. What do people have to be grateful for? We can't come see you. We're locked up. I think Sean would be so miserable because he wasn't, he was, you're going to tell him, Sean, you can't hug anybody anymore. And there's no sporting events. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that you got to just every day be grateful for what's in front of you and recognize it. Like Sean couldn't ride the two wheel bike, but he was grateful. And I was grateful. He could ride a three wheel bike, all the different things. He, he would shoot baskets for hours outside. And I brought him out the little mini basketball once. And he said, no, that's not a real ball. And he would just keep shooting and shooting and shooting. And then he became really good at basketball. And so there came a day when I said, you know what? How lucky am I that I have Sean, who's the kindest human being, who taught us unconditional love, who's happy about everything around him. And most people would look at Sean and they would say, what does he have to be grateful for? Because they're looking at him through their eyes. Right. They're not yeah. looking yeah. at the world through Sean's eyes. And I think that, you know, in the beginning, you know, I don't I didn't tell you the beginning of the story. When we came back from that neurologist, I still remember walking into his bedroom, his mom, Maggie, put him to bed, holding the crib, looking down, crying, saying, how are we going to live like this, buddy? I have no idea. And then 29 years later, all the wonderful memories I had with him. I now don't know how I'm going to live without him. And that makes me grateful because I have a lot of regrets in my life and a lot of things maybe I'd like to do over or change what I did a, you know, a year ago or 10 years ago or whatever. But I never missed an opportunity to be with Sean. And for that, I said in his eulogy, I have no regrets. I have regrets about a lot of things, but my relationship with Sean, I have no regrets. Yeah. And so, you know, for somebody who's trying to learn this, as I'm thinking about it, and so you, so you mentioned about having to pause and think about it. And that, that's actually, that's something we can practice. You know, I, I've got a friend who, who, who teaches as part of his coaching practice um, uh, techniques on, on gratitude. And one of the things he's, he says is keep a pad of paper by your bed every night before you go to bed, write three things that you are grateful for. You know, and, and I mean, there are different techniques. Now, in your book, at the end of each chapter, you offer some techniques and, and exercises, lessons, things to do. Um, you know, was your was your advice on gratitude, you know, similar? Is Do you, do you have maybe another idea? Um, how can we help people out with this? Well, I think you brought up a good point. Oprah used to say, keep your gratitude journal, right? Yeah. So until you hit something like the magnitude of me losing Sean, and I knew these lessons for 15 years before then, but all of a sudden... When I wrote his eulogy and I gave it, I realized, wow, the magnitude and the impact. And look at all of these people here that he had on people. And I think one of the amazing things is in the back of the book, after Sean passed away, his cousins and uncles and aunts and grandparents and teammates from Special Olympics wrote me letters. And we decided we would put them in the back of the book with their permission. And those were the most moving because I knew how Sean impacted my life. I know how he impacted his sisters and his mother, but the fact that he impacted every single one of those people who changed their lives because of their cousin, Sean, you know, three of them started a unified track at a Virginia high school, three of his cousins, his other cousins in Pennsylvania started the best buddies chapter at their high school, you know, which is the quote, normal kids being friends with the special needs. And they're still friends and text with, their classmates from Best Buddies. And on and on the list goes where he impacted and actually changed people's lives. And his sister is gonna end up helping so many people because she's decided 
to take a different route in her life now and work at a special needs school after she gets her master's. So it's just amazing that, you know, somebody that most would look at and say, why is he grateful? Yeah. Impacted and changed the lives of so many thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. And, and, and there's another way he changed lives. Uh, you know, so, and I'm going to get to one of the stories that I love. Um, in, in, in one regard, there's a lot of invisible people in the world. Maybe, maybe I'll start out like that. I, you know, the, there are people at work, all levels of jobs. And, you know, at the end of the day, most people want to be recognized for doing good work. They, they, want, to, they want to know that they're seen by others. And, and, and even the workplace seen by their bosses or the people they work for or work with. And, and yet, I, I mean, I've seen it where leaders don't even know you know, who's, who's three or four levels down from them in organizations they move through. Um, you, you share a story of the doorman. And I wonder if you would share that story and, and what your lesson was there. For those of you who can't see, I, I just put a big smile on TJ's face as, as I'm looking at, at the video. But this, I, I love this story. Could you, could you share this story, please? So Sean's first day of work, when he comes up to work at a couch receivable, his mom brought him in and he comes up to work and he puts all the envelopes through and you know, he does his job. The end of the day comes and we're going home together. And as we walk down to the lobby and are about to pass the security guard in my building, Sean goes, okay, Bruno, see you next Monday. And I was like, what? He goes, Bruno, say hi to your grandkids too. And I said, oh, hi, Bruno, I'm TJ Nelligan. And he goes, yeah, I know who you are. You're on the seventh floor. I felt about two inches big that my special needs son knows Bruno's name on the first day he came to work. And I've walked by this guy for 10 years, you know, maybe wave a little, hello, good morning, how are you? I didn't know his name. So after that, Sean was buddies with him. So he came to all our holiday parties every year after that for Nelligan Sports. <laughs> but I felt literally two inches tall saying, how does Sean have the ability to connect with people when the rest of us are rushing through life, walking past everyone? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's, it's the, the, maybe it's the attention to the details. It's being in the present in the now. That was the person that was there in the moment when he walked in. You know, it's, it's, you know my, my dad used to, one of the things I, I remember growing up, so you know, we had a big manufacturing operation, and a couple times a day my dad would get up and take a walk through the plant. And um, when I was a kid, I would walk with him. And he knew every person by name. A few hundred people. He knew every single one of them. He would stop and he would talk with them and all that stuff. And I remember he always said, he said, listen, he said, throughout your life, you're going to meet people at different levels with different jobs. He said, nobody is more important than anybody else. And nobody's more important than That's how you build a strong company with loyal employees. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and and all kinds of all kinds of philosophies. I I, I remember um, there was a gosh, there was an old business saying that said, be careful who you. When climbing the ladder, be careful who you step on um, on your way up the ladder because they're going to be the people that, that, that won't hold you up when you're on your way down the ladder or something like that. It was a funny kind of thing. But, but it really, there's a lot of philosophy, and yet it's amazing how, again, we're so focused on what has to happen next that we miss these moments. And that story is very relevant to, you know, be accepting of other people, no matter who they are. Sean was accepting of everyone if they were kind and they were nice and they were friendly because he knew we all have different packaging. You know, whether whatever the if you're in a wheelchair, you can't really speak well, or you can't do this. He still gave everybody a hug when they became friends, whether it's classmates or teachers or, you know, my friends out there. So I think that be accepting everybody's different size, different shape. But he knew we were packaged differently, but we all have more in common than uncommon. Yeah, isn't, isn't that the truth? And, and again, just, just the openness to others. What, what would the world be like if everybody could accept people at all different levels? Especially in today's environment, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, if there's ever been a time when things are, have been more divided, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm sure that there are different er eras in history, but it feels feels like there's a pretty great divide right now in, in, in almost every kind of category, whether it's political, social, um, and, and, and we're kind of, it, it feels like everybody is always, always, you know, talking about all the problems, but people don't seem to focus on the solutions. No, that's true. 100% true. Yeah. So, um, we got a, we got time for maybe one or two more stories. Um, what's another one that what's another favorite of yours? 
Well, um, one of my favorite stories is we were in St. Thomas on vacation. And back then, Sean would wake up at five o'clock in the morning. So I said, I'll take him. Went down, found a bagel and a juice. We're sitting on a chair. No one else around at 530 in the morning. And Sean is mesmerized and by the guy swimming in the pool that has no legs and one arm. And he's swimming laps back and forth and back and forth. And he comes over and he grabs the railing and he gets himself up into his wheelchair. And I realize that's Senator Max Cleland, who's won the Bronze Star and the Silver Star in Vietnam. He's a decorated war hero, powerful senator from Georgia. And Sean yells at him, hey, buddy, you're a great swimmer. Where did you learn to swim so good? And he smiles and he comes wheeling over, sensing, you know, there's something different about Sean. And he goes, hey, I'm Sean. And Max Cleland says, hi, I'm Max. And they start talking for a few minutes. And Sean says, oh, Max, this is my dad, TJ. And I said, hi, Senator, nice to meet you. Just letting him know I know who he was. Yeah. But we get done. Max makes Sean feel important by saying, let me wheel me up to the elevator, buddy. Okay. So I forget all about this story. We're in the lobby waiting to go to dinner with my parents, his sisters, his mom, a couple other people. And I forgot all about it. And all of a sudden I see Max Cleland come off the elevator with a couple of aides. He's got a suit and tie on. He must be going to some function. And he sees us and he hits his aide and points over to us. So my father sees him coming straight at us. And he says, isn't that that senator from Georgia? And I said, oh, yeah. And I realized I'm not even going to say anything. Watch what happens. And Max wheels up. He goes, how's my buddy Sean doing? Good to see you again, pal. Who are all these fine people? Oh, this is my grandpa, my grandma, my sisters, my mom. We chat for a little bit. Everyone's so confused. How does Sean even know this guy? And he leaves, goes on his way. And we turn around to get a cab to go to dinner. And the line has grown to 20, 30 people. Mm -hmm. So we start walking over there and the valet sees Sean, hits his heart and points to him and goes, hey, buddy, how you doing? How's my man? You need a cab? Yeah. He yells at the other valet, put two van cabs on the side for my buddy Sean. And my dad looks at me and goes, are you kidding me? This is a special needs guy. He's the most powerful guy in the family. <laughs> and the moral of the story is whether he was friends with the people that were getting the cabs, the valet or a war hero who's a senator, he treated them both the same because they both treated him with kindness. You know, the, the outstanding. Uh, again, so we, we could go on for, for, for so very, very long. Um, you know, what are you up to today? We've, we've got a couple minutes left. And so, you know, you've, you've published the book. Are you doing some speaking? What are some of the other things that are going on in your life right now? And how are you, beyond the book, taking, taking Sean's life forward for people? Well, you know, when my friend told me I should write the book, I didn't really think I was going to. But then I figured, you know what, in 20 or 30 years, I don't want to forget all these stories and all this greatness and lessons that Sean taught us. So I figured, ah, we'll print 200 copies. We'll give them out to his teammates and friends and family. And then it took on a life of its own. I got my two favorite writers through different contacts. Uh, Harlan Coben, mm -hmm. who's only sold 100 and something million books and has Netflix shows. He endorsed my book and Mitch Albom, who wrote Tuesdays with Maury and a whole yeah, bunch of other yeah. books. I was on his radio show last week, but this is how talented they are. Mitch says, live like Sean is a wonderful book that like Sean himself will stay in your heart long after you turn the final page. And Mitch Albom said a book for anyone who has ever been fiercely inspired by a child, which should be everyone. And what amazed me about that was most people would take two paragraphs. These are so talented authors that each of them, who never met Sean, they just read the book, one sentence it took them to capture the spirit of the book. And so it's just taken off like crazy. January 19th, you know, it was on sale for the Kindle and it went up to number 20 total and number two in my category for new releases. So it's absolutely been amazing. And the support and love from everybody out there um, that are buying books and doing all this stuff, this is Sean's legacy. He's going to help so many people because of people being able to learn the lessons and spread the word to more people on behalf of Sean's legacy. That's uh, again, thank you so much, TJ. It's, you know what, it's been a pleasure having you on today. And, and, and you know, I want everybody to think about who's the Sean in your life. 
Right. And, and, you know, there, there is somebody out there. Maybe it's even one of those people that are invisible in your world that you haven't noticed. But consider that. And how, how would you have eyes through a child and, and without the, the, the different, let's call it, um, thinking that we develop in our lifetime, the biases that we have, the things that right. hold us back. But, but, but when you really look at, at life through a child's eyes or even a special need you know, person's eyes, you know, that, that unfiltered, that love, that passion, that kindness for, for being alive, that's great. You know, I had a coach growing up and, and um, wonderful man. And the, he, you know, he, he always said, you know, and I can remember this early morning workouts, you know, the first thing I was about, it's a great day to be alive. You know, let's, let's, let's take a little bit of time and, and, and be present. Let's take these lessons. Uh, you know, um, I, I don't, I don't, take a lot of time on the show typically and, and, and be more of an endorsement on things. But this is one that I really want to highlight. Live Like Sean is, I think it's a book everybody should read. Um, you know, go out there, find it. It's on Kindle. It's, it, you can get yeah, it. We have, uh, we have tjnelligan.com, which has a whole bunch sure. of stories about Sean. And anywhere books are sold, you can buy it. And there's a Facebook and an Instagram and everything that's taken off, which is beyond my wildest dreams. And I'm so happy because I always say, this is not my book. This is Sean's book, and I'm just the messenger. Yeah, and this is, uh, talk about, again, transforming and helping others transform. And, and just, just for the record, T.J. Nelligan, um, you know, we, we always like to spell these things out because, you know, in just in case you, you're, you can't hear clearly on the, on the, the program, it's, it's the letter T, the letter J, N-E-L-L-I-G-A-N, correct? Correct.com. Perfect. Excellent. And, um, you know, if, if any of you ever want to reach out to TJ, I'm sure you can, you can find him or find access through the website. You're always welcome to connect through, through ours here at voice America. And, um, and, and I'll put you in contact. I hope you've enjoyed the show. TJ, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. It's been a great honor. I really appreciate it. I had fun with you. Oh, I had fun too. And appreciate so much the, the, the stories that you've shared. There's so much to learn from this. Well, folks, that's it for today. Um, you know, come on back next week. We've got another another great host coming up, and um, and hopefully uh, this book will touch you the way it's touched me. Until next week, see you soon. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.